the descriptor of the king of Israel by the name of Jehoash, and I think sometimes a descriptor of you and of me. What separates us from God is not God. What separates us is our sin. Hi, everyone. My name is Kelvin, and welcome back to another episode of Elevate Retake, the message. I'm excited for this message, and and the entire series has been phenomenal. Hopefully, you've been enjoying them. I'd encourage you to go back. If you happen to miss a week from our Radical Faith series, go back and listen to them. It's been a blessing for sure. Today for the message, we've got the latest one titled The Probably Faithful God, where we unpack 2 Kings chapter 13, verses 14 through 23. Pastor Mike will be diving into this portion of the message today, and it's a little bit about our future. Our success sometimes depends on the degree which we work in harmony with God, but often we rely too much on our own strength, trying to accomplish life with our own force. Here's Pastor Michael. Welcome home. There's always room for one more. It's good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. Amen. It's good to be here. A couple of quick things before we dive into today's piece of scripture. Infinite hope. It's happening this coming week. We are T-minus four days starting Wednesday night at 7 p.m. And here's what I'd like you to do with these. This is the intention behind kind of scattering these um, across the floor here and up on the balcony as well. I, I would encourage you to take this home with you or two or three. We've got plenty. I've got a whole stack of up here uh, if you'd like to take more with you. Uh, But what I'd like you to do is to take it home and to pray over it and to ask God who might need to receive this this week that might be blessed by attending in person or online Infinite Hope, The Pursuit of Happiness. We talked about it a little bit last week, but it's, it, it's our take on an evangelistic series, but at its core is trying to share a beautiful picture of Jesus and a beautiful picture of his kingdom. So I said it last week, I'll say it again. If there was ever a time that you've been thinking or praying about, maybe just maybe would this church do something that I could invite a friend to that wouldn't scare them off, this is the thing. This is it. This is your sign. I don't know if it needs to be a card or a graphic on the screen, whatever it is. This is it. This is the time. We invite you to come out, a family member, friend, your coworker, anybody. We're going to be diving into the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and particularly the Beatitudes and having some very prescient conversations about the way of Jesus and his kingdom. So Wednesday night, 7 p.m., Thursday night, 7 p.m., Friday evening, 7.30, make it a little bit later. We're syncing up with the, with the university on that. And then next Sabbath, October 9, 10.30 a.m., right here in this space, and then 7 p.m. that evening as well. You are not going to want to miss it. Here's where we turn today. We're looking at radical faith for the last time under this series, but certainly not leaving it behind in our pursuit of Jesus. And our question this morning is, how do God's promises affect your everyday life? We've been journeying through 2 Kings, and I invite you to turn there. Uh, just kind of a brief overview. Seven, we, we finished uh, 2 Kings 6, and we're going to skip chapters 7 through 13. Um, and Well, we're going to get to the second half of 13 today. But there's just a lot going on in the kingdom of Israel. There's king after king coming up, and they keep doing evil in the sight of the Lord. King after king, evil is in the land. And 2 Kings chapters 7 through 13 provide vignette after vignette of kings not doing good things. 
But there's a faithful prophet, the man of God, a guy by the name of Elisha, who's working behind the scenes, leading, guiding, and directing anyone who will follow after Yahweh, the God of Israel. And oftentimes it's not a, it's not a pretty picture and we uh, didn't dwell on those chapters for very long because it's just, it's evil after evil after evil. Today we're going to be looking at the closing moments of Elisha's life, his final acts before he dies and then one other after he dies, but we'll get there in a moment. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me, 2 Kings chapter 13, verse 14. It's going to be up on the screen for you, for those of you that are in the building and watching online. By the way, those of you that are online, it's good to see you. I know we've got a few people in person today that are normally online, so glad y'all are here. Feel free to come on down anytime, but we're glad that you are with us either online right now or listening to the podcast later. So here we go. 2 Kings chapter 13, verse 14. When Elisha was in his last illness, King Jehoash of Israel visited him and wept over him. My father, my father, I see the chariots and charioteers of Israel, he cried. We have to pause for a moment because we're introduced to a new character that's not been a part of the storyline thus far. Imagine for a moment, this could have been in Shunem, in that upper room that the woman of Shunem had prepared for Elisha, and the king has come to visit. This is backwards, though, because it's normally prophets that call upon and visit kings as opposed to kings coming and visiting the prophet. And we're introduced to this king of Israel by the name of Jehoash, or maybe your Bible just says Joash. By the way, he's the king of Israel. He's not the boy king of Judah. The boy king of Judah, Joash, did what was right in the sight of, sight of God, started serving the community as king at age seven. This is not him. The kings of Israel are embroiled with king after king doing evil in the sight of the Lord. And it's this king, Jehoash, who's come to visit the prophet on his deathbed. This isn't the best king in the line of kings of Israel. And perhaps he's coming before him weeping some tears and mourning the loss of life, but also maybe, just maybe, trying to do something to appease God or appease the prophet as he's not followed God for so long at the prophet's deathbed is the time that he chooses to come back to him. And he uses this phrase, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. He knew the story of Elisha and Elijah. And if you can remember it as six weeks ago when we talked about the calling of Elijah to heaven and the placing of the mantle on Elisha, these words are very familiar. They come straight out of 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 12. As Elisha, then the young prophet, is looking to the older prophet Elijah, and the promise before him is that if you see me go, you will receive the double portion. And the chariots and the charioteers, those fiery chariots, block his vision from seeing Elijah going. And Jehoash, knowing this, is trying to get back to the symbology of that moment. And maybe, just maybe, he could receive the blessing, trying to recreate that moment. Have you ever had an extreme moment of nostalgia or remembering back to a time where things were good and you try to do the things that you were doing at that time to maybe elicit that same response? That's Jehoash in this very moment. 
He recognizes that perhaps the defense of Israel, the, the mediator that's in be, be, between him and God is now gone. And what is he going to do? And Elisha in this moment doesn't call him out for his sins, does not castigate him before those that were gathered in the room, disfellowship him from the community. He gives him simple instructions. Verses 15 through 17. On the screen for you, verse 15 of 2 Kings chapter 13. Elisha told him, get a bow and some arrows. And the king did as he was told. The story continues in verse 16. Elisha told him, put your hand on the bow. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. In verse 17. Then he commanded... Open that eastern window, and he opened it. And then he said, shoot. And so he shot the arrow, and Elisha proclaimed, this is the Lord's arrow, an arrow of victory over Aram, for you will completely conquer the Arameans at Aphek. Sometimes symbolic actions impress truth more vividly than abstract statements. Elisha could have said, hey, things are going to be okay. God will extend a blessing towards you. But he asked the king to turn to his attendant and ask for a bow and an arrow. And as the king turns from the bed of Elisha where he's laying down on his deathbed, he turns to the servant that would have been with him in that moment carrying his weapons of war and he receives the bow and the arrow from his servant and he turns back around and Elisha is standing there. The man who's on his deathbed, dying of illness, has now stood up. He tells him, take the bow and arrow, knock the arrow. And Elisha places his hands on the king's hands. And then it's in all likelihood, Elisha speaks to the servant and says, open that eastern window. And the eastern window is open and Elisha and the king draw the arrow back. And Elisha says, shoot. And the king releases the arrow and it flies through the open eastern window. Interesting picture that we see in this moment. The Lord's arrow, victory was guaranteed, yet the king's future in this symbolic action completely depended upon the degree to which he would work in harmony with the divine action. You see, it's Elisha who places his hands and covers the king in a symbolic form saying, this is what God will do with you. As you cooperate with me, we're going to be working together for the victory of Israel. And could it be that our future success depends upon the degree to which we work in harmony with God? That as we see what is in front of us, the insurmountable invading Arameans that we turn towards God and say, God, I'm here to work with you. I've been fighting against you for so long, but here is my moment. I want to work with you. And God places his arms around us and covers us and guides our hands and our actions wherever we go. But it's not enough to just follow the symbol and say, that's going to be okay. The story continues in verse 18 of 2 Kings chapter 13. Then he said, now pick up the other arrows and strike them against the ground. So the king picked them up and struck the ground three times. Verse 19. 
But the man of God was angry with him. You should have struck the ground five or six times, he exclaimed. Then you would have beaten Aram until it was entirely destroyed. Now you will be victorious only three times. The promise of God had been given to the king of Israel. It is there in the moment for him to accept it. But the prophet and God are testing King Jehoash to see if his radical faith in the promise of God will elicit a fruit born out in his life. That he will act upon the God of promise. But the problem with the King Jehoash, as evidenced by his actions in the scripture, is that he believed in a probably faithful God. Elijah, I get it. Elisha, I get it. God probably will be faithful, right? And so, yeah, I do like the symbol. I like do the thing and like, yeah, cool blessing. And then I'm going to go and then we're going to actually have to, have to deal with it. The promise of God had yet to transform the heart of King Jehoash. Will this promise maybe, just maybe, prompt him to strike the ground five, six times to act out in response to the promise that the prophet had given him? And I imagine the king probably felt a little silly, right? Because you normally use arrows, you pull them to a bow, you pull it back and you shoot it. You don't use arrows to beat the ground. And I, I can imagine as he's taking this bundle of arrows and he's like, I'm supposed to do what with this? And he kind of leans down and maybe he kind of like, uh, prophet, you sure that like this, this is the thing we're doing right now? Yeah, okay. I imagine uh, it's hard for us to relate, right? We, we haven't been in that, in, that, in that situation, but perhaps have you ever been at, at your own birthday party and everybody's singing happy birthday to you? What do you do in that moment, right? Do you make eye contact with every single person and smile nice and bright? No, that would be a little bit too upfront, right? But then if you were to not make eye contact and kind of look down and you're not engaged and you're not grateful, what do you do? Do you sing along? And then afterwards is like, thank you or you're welcome. Like, how, what, what do you do? You're just kind of frozen there with this kind of like, kind of half smile on your face. Like, when is this going to be over? And then if you come from a mixed heritage and background, you've got people of uh, multiple backgrounds there. Not only are they singing in English, but now it's in Portuguese. And then we're going to sing it in Spanish. And it's just like, when can this be done? <laughs> like all the attention on me. Imagine that, that feeling of, of not knowing what to do and, and kind of frozen was what the king was feeling in that moment. He's given a task that's not a usual task for arrows to be done with. And he's like, ah, ah, ah. And in that moment, he doesn't allow the promise of God to change his heart. And Elisha's upset about that. He said, man, if you truly believe this, you would have struck the ground five or six times with a heart that was transformed by a promise. You would have brought them to utter defeat. But now you will be victorious only three times. You see, incomplete, incomplete faith gains but partial victory. Radical faith trusts the God of the promise to bring full victory. There was nothing the king could have done without cooperating with God that would have brought victory to Israel. But by cooperating with God, by laying his life in harmony and being transformed by the promise of God, full victory was assured. But the king was unwilling to go all in and give of his whole self to God. 
Because he believed in a probably faithful God instead of a God who is unequivocally faithful. Remember a few years ago, I was listening to a sermon. We were on a family vacation and had stopped in, in, into a church, and there was a guest speaker there by the name of Dick Dirksen. Some of you may know him. He writes for some of our Seventh-day Adventist publications and an incredible story catcher and storyteller, as he likes to describe himself. And in this message, he's talking about this experience that he's had with, with a, a glove maker, And not someone who just takes some nice fabric and turns them into gloves. No, this is a a person who has the animals that will be turned into gloves outside of his shop. And he he gets the measurements done and he does all of that and he's about to leave. He's paid up and everything. And the, the shop owner turns to him and says, do you know how I make gloves? And Dick says, no, I I don't, but I'm about to find out because you're going to tell me, right? And he says, yeah. And he takes them through the process of the animal being killed so that the the hides could be taken and tanned and through the various different chemicals that they're bathed in and the oils and how they're they're, they're stretched and then the patterns are cut out and there's just enough so that they can be sewn together to fit perfectly the hand for which they're designed for. And then the frills and the tassels are put on and, and quoting this shop owner who makes these gloves, Dick Dirksen writes this, well, it's not easy becoming a glove on his hands. Illustrating the gloves that he was making, saying there's a symbolism here between the glove being put on your hand and maybe God working in your life. You see, you die. You get split again and again. You get whacked. Anybody feel like they've been whacked this week? Uh, Don't raise your hand. It's okay. Safe space, though. Safe space. Maybe, never mind. You get cured in a vat of Holy Spirit oil. You get tinted to his desire, poked and sewed to a perfect fit. And you get the foufra of his grace stitched all over you, those little danglies of leather that make them look oh so beautiful. And then here's the kicker. Then he, God, slips inside of you and begins touching the world so as to make it a bigger, safer, happier, better place his place. In all that Elisha was trying to extend to the king Jehoash, all that God was trying to extend towards him is say, please be a glove that I can slide into and then I can touch the world. Because a glove is useless without a hand inside of it. The glove is only useful when there is a hand with mobility and strength put inside of that glove. You and I are that glove. We are useless. We are but an empty shell without the Spirit of God coming inside of us, moving through us to touch the world around us, to make this world a better place. That was the offer that was extended to King Jehoash, but he does not take it. To elevate the work of God in our lives, sometimes we do downplay our own role. But God is a God who gives us agency in his miracles in the same way that the glove is an active part of any moment and situation that needs it. God invites us to be his co-agents in his divine work. Pulling back the arrow, putting on the glove, God says, you are as much a part of this as you are as, as much as I am. Yesterday, Bible commentary in volume two, page 928, puts it this way on the screen for you. 
God can achieve victories of his grace through his servants only as they give themselves in complete consecration to him and work with unflagging energy and zeal. It's a two-parter. Yes, grace is there. Salvation is there, extended towards you. But God invites us into his salvation work. But sometimes there's this separation. And the text was read just a a few moments ago. Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2 read this way. Listen, the Lord's arm is not too weak to save you, nor is his ear too deaf to hear your call. Verse 2, it's your sins that have cut you off from God. Because of your sins, he has turned away and will not listen anymore. It's a hard passage to read, and that's the descriptor of the king of Israel by the name of Jehoash, and I think sometimes a descriptor of you and of me. What separates us from God is not God. What separates us is our sin. But this chapter is not done. It finishes with verses 20 and 21. The Redeemer will come to Jerusalem to buy back those in Israel who have turned from their sins, says the Lord. And this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit will not leave them. I'm not taking my hand out of the glove. And neither will these words I have given you. They will be on your lips and on the lips of your children and your children's children forever. I, the Lord, have spoken. Even though our sin separates us from God, God says, I'm not letting that get in the way. I'm not pulling my hand out of you. My spirit will be upon you and will fill you. And see, here's the thing. Jehoash was not faithful to God. He was evil in his sight, but God was still faithful. He's faithful in 2 Kings chapter 13, verses 20 through 21. Then Elisha died and was buried. Groups of Moabite raiders used uh, to invade the land each spring. And in verse 21, Once when some Israelites were burying a man, they spied a band of these raiders, and so they hastily threw the corpse into the tomb of Elisha and fled. But as soon as the body touched Elisha's bones, the dead man revived and jumped to his feet. The Spirit of God was still upon Elisha, that even in his death, he was able to raise somebody from death into life. And I think that's the exact same thing that God was wanting to do for Jehoash. And I think that's why this story is in the, the middle of this experience, that God was wanting to take an evil king who is not serving him and say, I want to bring you back to life. I want your, my promises to do something inside of your heart to well up within you that I'm a God of peace and a God of compassion that's willing to work in, by, and through you to accomplish my good purpose. And even if Jehoash was not faithful, God was still faithful. The the story's not done. It continues in verse 22. King Hazael of Aram had oppressed Israel during the entire reign of King Jehoash. Verse 23. But the Lord was gracious and merciful to the people of Israel, and they were not totally destroyed. The enemy can bring weapons against us and some destruction may come upon us but God says no they will not be totally destroyed he pitied them because of his covenant with Abraham Isaac and Jacob and to this day he still has not completely destroyed them or banished them from his presence 
because of the promise that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I am not going to let my people perish. And I would offer to you that the same spirit, the same promise that God speaks about, that the writer speaks about in this moment is a promise that can be extended to you and to me. And then because of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the promise that God gave them that a redeemer would come, that we would be reborn and renewed, today we can walk in newness of life. God's not done yet. Verse 24, King Hazael of Aram died, and his son Ben-Hadad became the next king. And in verse 25, then Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz, recaptured from Ben-Hadad, son of Hazael, the towns that had been taken from Jehoash's father. Jehoahaz. Jehoash defeated Ben-Hadad on three occasions and he recovered the Israelites' towns. God was faithful. Even despite Jehoash's uh, miscues and, and his evil and his following after not God, God was still faithful that he brought the victory, that the towns of Israel were restored. And here's the problem. Here's the problem that we face when we believe in the probably faithful God. It means that we rely on our own strength, that we try to do things of our own accord, our own devices, and we run around trying to accomplish life with brute force, and that gets tiring. How do God's promises affect your everyday life? Do you live differently because of the promises of God? Have his promises transformed your heart? So that when you walk in newness of life, it does not matter what comes against you, but you know that you are the glove on the hand of God or that his arms are embracing you and holding up that arrow and you are fighting in his strength. Living with radical faith, it compels us to respond to the grace of God and work diligently that others would know him. So here's our purpose. Our purpose is to give of our whole selves to the mission and to the calling of God. To say, God, I'm the glove. I'm the bow and the arrow. The only thing, the only way that this works is if we are in this together because God is faithful. And today, we can and we must have radical faith in a radically faithful God. Let's pray. God, thank you for this journey through Scripture. We've been at it for six weeks, looking at the radical faith of your people in Scripture. But what I've come to see is that you are radically faithful, that you are accomplishing in our lives, despite our hangups, despite our insecurities, despite the things that we keep going back to. God, you are faithful. So God, we rest on your promises this morning. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be invited into our space and that you would slip inside of us like a hand fits in to a well-fitted glove. And that through us, you can touch the world around us. God, we leave that in your hands and we look forward to seeing you soon. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks so much for listening to this message from Elevate Retake. Make sure to stay tuned for the Retake conversation dropping this week where we take the message and unpack it even more. We hope you have a fantastic day whenever time you are listening 
to the episode and maybe you would like to share it with a friend or family member if it blessed you or impacted you in some way. Again, if you happen to miss a week uh, of the sermon series Radical Faith, we'd encourage you to go back to either Spotify or iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts and catch up on this series. You can find us on Instagram at Elevate Retake, and we'd love for you to leave us a voice message over on the Anchor app. You could be featured in our next podcast if you do so. You can find the link to that in the description. See you next time.